0: Hi there, this is Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter, and welcome back to a fifth season of It Happened in Hollywood. This is the podcast where we bring in directors and actors and have them talk everything they know about the making of one specific project. And uh, we have a great lineup for you this season, especially since we have our first Tom Cruise movie on the lineup. All that and more after this on It Happened in Hollywood. (laughs) So, Ed Zwick, probably not the first person you would think of to be helming massive-budget Tom Cruise samurai epics. Uh, He's a uh, pretty down-to-earth guy, a Jewish guy from Chicago, Illinois, but he went to AFI Conservatory and got a Master of Fine Art degree back in the mid-70s. And then he went on to have a really impressive TV career, creating 30-something, which was the water cooler show of the 80s, giving blood and beating hearts to uh, yuppies (laughs) as they were known at the era but then he made his way into film and boy did he ever it started with about last night which is the film adaptation of david mamet's sexual perversity in chicago uh, which we talked about a bit with david mamet in season two and then went on to just a string of extraordinary films glory which won desel washington his oscar Uh, his first Oscar and uh, then Legends of the Fall with Brad Pitt he made Blood Diamond in 2006 with Leonardo DiCaprio so working with the biggest uh, movie stars in the world and the biggest perhaps is Tom Cruise in 2003's Last Samurai it's a fascinating conversation and he talks more about it and the rest of his work in his new book hits, flops, and other illusions, my 40-something years in Hollywood. So without further ado, here is Ed Zwick talking about the making of 2003's The Last Samurai. Thank you so much for joining us uh, on what is the season premiere of the fifth season of It Happened in Hollywood. All right. Um, Your career is kind of mind-boggling. We could do an entire season just on stuff you've done from 30-something to my so-called life, two of the most influential shows of my youth that I, I really admired the work you did in TV. But then, of course, you went on to this incredible career writing and directing and glory and these incredible historic epics. And of course, we're going to focus on one today being The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise from 2003. So I understand that our timing is good here because you've put down all your memories of this incredible career into one Volume. Could you tell us about it? Uh,
1: about that per- about writing the volume or about that <laughs> particular movie?
0: No, well we'll get into the telling of the last samurai in a second, but I want to know a bit about uh your new book, sure. which yeah, has sure. a, a very funny title, Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions. My forty something years in Hollywood. Yeah. First of all, what sparked you to, to finally write uh this memoir?
1: Well, I mean I think I mean probably the the impetus had COVID not happened. The book may never have happened hmm. you know i was about to we were actually about to begin the first day of shooting of the uh, reboot of 30 something called 30 something else we were in new york the day that the whole city and the whole country shut down wow and it was never to be for any number of reasons which most of which are boring and financial and management and networks and anything everything other than the best reasons but there I was, and I was becalmed. I was home, and I was unaccustomed to being that way. And I'm usually pretty active. And I did something that I've never done before. Just I, I looked at a couple of my movies. Mm. You know, there have been times when my kids, I'll hear something in the next room, and one of my kids was looking at something, and I'll recognize a cue, and I'll walk in and watch 10 minutes. But that was about the extent of it. But there I was, and it wasn't that I was you know, so charmed by what worked or that I was so dismayed by what didn't work. But what I couldn't help thinking about were these, this just parade of relationships, these deep, deep, intense collaborations with people, many of whom I I, I will never see again and never saw again. And yet we shared something intense for all all of us and, and meaningful. And so just as a kind of a Impulse. I just I sketched out a couple of just scenes for myself. What I have to admit is when I, you know, how you keep a file in the computer, and I called it B dash dash K, which is to say, <laughs> so as to not offend the literary gods and take its name in vain. I didn't want to admit that I was writing a book, <laughs> right? <laughs> but eventually, it it became one, and um, and it was it was a challenge. You know, I've always benefited from writing at a, at a remove. I've written personally, but I've always put it in the mouths of other people, you know, very nicely clothed and lit people over there. And this was writing in the first person. And there's a real vulnerability and a certain inhibition about that. And I had some things I had to get past. And there were a couple of friends of mine who are very good readers, serious readers, serious writers, prose writers, who were willing to read it and gave me the most remarkable advice, actually both of them, um, said the same thing. And they said, you know, we're going to tell you something you probably have said to other writers that you've worked with and to actors, which is to say we need to see more of you in it. Hmm. And that challenged me. And yes, I could write amusing anecdotes and I could write clever dialogue, but was I willing to dig and reveal some of the things about myself that in fact affected those things and were affected by those things? And once I started to do that, it, it became a real interesting, creative challenge a real important moment just as a writer. And I would say that's, you know, the, at least the pedigree of it.
0: Did you notice anything about the kind of things you'd made that you hadn't noticed before in terms of like a through line or something on lock for you in, in revisiting all of these things?
1: Mm, I mean, there are, you can start to see certain themes over time. I know that there is, and this will pertain to talking about samurai, I, I know that I'm, I'm interested in some... Some various depictions of heroism by certain names. But I also found themes of fathers and sons, false and true. I certainly saw what I actually saw was about my own learning to roll with a career, to come to understand that it was a very long distance event. And that was applicable not just to um, a movie career, it was, a, it was applicable to a marriage. It was applicable to raising children. Mm. And and so there, you know, and, and I think, you know, some of the things we've done have been very personal about about those things, but it's not always in those things that it finds its application. Mm-hmm. Fascinating.
0: Well, I've peeked at it and I've been enjoying it. At a preview of the, of the book there's some great lessons in between the chapters uh, you know what you've learned either from film school or from just working in the trenches uh, so i think it'll be a great read for anyone who aspires to make films uh, or just as finds themselves fascinated by the world such as
1: me <laughs> the only thing i would say is that was actually one of my intentions i mean obviously the the book i hope will appeal to those who know the work or may want to know the inside baseball of the work and the dishy stuff but in fact I I thought maybe could I write a book that I would have liked to have read when I was starting out? Mm. What is it that I, you know, may have bequeathed in just in terms of some understanding of what a career is and what the struggle and the good fight is?
0: And you realize looking at it all that, you know, there's a lot of lows to every high. (laughs) It looks glamorous, but.
1: Yeah, it's not about if you're going to get knocked down, but when, and what do you do when you are knocked down? And it's not just the only time it's going to happen that this is, you know, it's, it is riddled with disappointment and it's a, an art based on commerce and and it's compromised in in any number of different ways and, you know, you have to become both ferocious and supple,
0: <laughs> which you clearly are. I can just looking at you. I can tell Well. <laughs> I don't. Know. Um, all right. The Last Samurai, uh which it looms huge to me on when we were talking about doing an episode on that. I, I actually was thinking about doing a season of just epics and I thought, well, I'll never get to them because they're too epic. But here we are. <laughs> and it had the world's biggest star in it. It had the most insane uh, visuals and, and war battles. And So let's start with you know how, how an idea like this uh, blooms in your mind.
1: Oh, gosh, it, it's such a long, like a lot of things for me. I mean, you know, Legends of the Fall is something I read when I was 21 and didn't get to make till I was uh, close to 40. In this case, I was even younger when I, I took a course in college and read a textbook about Japanese history. And it told of this character named Saigo Takamori, who was referred to as The Last Samurai. And the name of the book, which is a great name, the book was called The Nobility of Failure. Hmm. That stuck with me. And I kept that book. And then when I first came to Hollywood, this I'll get there. This is a this is a long tale and, and you ask, but absolutely. When I first came to Hollywood, the first real writing job I got for a studio was a pitch that I made to Fox about uh it was called The Heart of the Mountain. Mm. And it was about an American, a sort of soul sick, fucked up GI in Korea who is involved in a sort of traumatic incident. And he comes back and he's not doing well in civilian life. And they offer him a job to go be part of a military liaison to the CIA to go into Tibet, where the Dalai Lama is being threatened by the Chinese and to try to help escort him out of Tibet. Hmm. And what happens is his plane crashes and he ends up losing three toes and being locked in the Lama Seri, and he meets this Lama, and then he finally makes his way to Lhasa and ends up participating in that escape, but doesn't make it. And it's not this story, but it has in it this idea of a Western man's encounter with certain Buddhist philosophies and certain different cultures. So that's another start. And then... There was a script. It was about a cattle drive in Japan, and it was a, a silly script. But but I was working. John Logan and I had become friends, and John Logan, the screenwriter of Gladiator. John and- Logan, screenwriter, right. And we were trading stories back and forth. We wanted to write about the wobbly union busting and hard rock mining in 1890s. We wanted to write about Upton Sinclair's race for governor. There were any number of things we were kicking back and forth. And that happened for almost a couple of years. And then this thing came back to my mind. And I wrote John and he said, let's do that. And it was different days in Hollywood. Um, John had just written Gladiator. I had had a certain amount of success with, you know, films and we went and talked to Lorenzo de Bonaventura, who was at that point, the president of Warner brothers. I walked into his office and I said, this is the story. In fact, John wasn't even with me at that moment. John was maybe on the phone, but, but it was 20 minutes and Lorenzo said, yeah, okay, let's, let's, let's develop that. Hmm. There was no team. It was no running it up the flagpole. He just liked, I mean, he was interested in, in, in samurai culture, he was interested in action movies, he was interested in me and John, and so uh, we began to do our own research, and that was a you know a real period of time, and John was getting very busy at that time, but he uh, would come to California, or we would, he wasn't even on, on, on email at that point, yet yeah, we would fax. We just would work from afar, trying to come up with an outline, trying to come up with a concept, a, a conceit, and... Eventually, we came up with something, and John went off to write the first draft. And he wrote it, and it was full of really wonderful things, but the story wasn't really cooked. It just wasn't there. And John, at that point, his his, his star was very ascendant. A uh, gladiator had come out, and that had become a very big deal that John had written. He had forsaken some other things to do this, thinking he could fit it in, and then discovered he couldn't. And I knew that was going to be it. I made a kind of classic mistake at that point. I thought I had known... Tom Cruise through a couple of interesting connections, uh, he was friends with Rob Lowe and Emilio Estevez and Demi Moore when I was doing my first movie. So I had met him about last on the night. Set of about last night, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then when I was doing Legends of the Fall, there was a moment that he was interested in doing it, and so at one point I flew to I was in Wyoming, I think, and spent a day with him and. And he was he was interested, but I think there were certain things about the script and about the character that he wasn't really relating to. And we met again in L.A., and in the nicest way, he just danced away, as actors do, without ever quite saying no, but just without ever saying yes. And that's often how it happens. Mm-hmm. But it's now, gosh, uh, maybe is it, is it now 10 years later or some long period of time later? And I think that Tom would be really great to play this part. And so I sent him John's script and he very kindly passed and I was disappointed. And I remember it was Christmas and we go to Colorado, the little cabin up in Colorado, and I've got a little office above the garage and I knew I shouldn't have done that. And I was just, you know, moping. And in my office, I've got a lot of very interesting artifacts, things from cavalry photos of, of men from the 19th century and, I'd gotten into a lot of that when I did Legends of the Fall, so I had some you know, familiarity with the period and with these men. And I, I read a diary, and it was a diary written by a cavalry officer. And in the diary was this voice, a very austere, spare, descriptive voice, as they're trained to do, as men were trained to write in that period at West Point, and included maps and things that he had done. And I said to myself, damn, that would be the way to do this, would be to begin with this man and hear him narrate in a kind of unemotional way this thing that he was encountering, even as we, the audience, were watching it work its way on him emotionally. And I sat down and in two weeks I rewrote the script. Uh, a lot of John's stuff that was great and stuff that I added. And I walked back into Lorenzo's office and I put the script on his desk and I said, look, you don't have to pay me. What you have to do is Call Tom Cruise's agent and say, I want to resubmit this. And he went, Yeah, okay. And it never happens that a movie star says yes a second time. At least in my experience. That's it's a kind of love affair that's gone south and you're past it. And lo and behold, we got a call that Tom wanted to meet. And things really start to change right around that point when Tom Cruise says he's really interested in something. You know, I've always fought a lot of battles to get movies made. They're not the most obvious choices a black regiment in the civil war terrorism you know uh friendly fire in the gulf war it's just not the most oh yeah that's a slam dunk for a studio right but in this case because of Tom there was immediately there were there was wind in the sails of this and i went over there and i saw him and we spent a very long time talking that first night and several times thereafter but very quickly remarkably quickly he said yes and at that point it was just you know all tethers are loosened and you just say, how do we make a movie about 19th century Japan? And in those days, Warner Brothers was the very best place to do something like that because their first response is, well, listen, take your time and here's the money to, 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 that you can to do R&D and find out how to do this correctly, beautifully, but um, responsibly. And probably it was a million dollars to go to Japan talk to historians talk to experts go to uh, as it turned out new zealand because i'd been there before with my children and my wife and i remembered that that new zealand is a north south mountainous island it, it, the vegetation is actually very much like japan might have looked like back then of course there's nothing like that in japan left anymore and you see that the minute you go there and so we scouted it by helicopter but how could we build the city there and then somebody said, well, let's just build that city on the New York street and Warner Brothers. Now we're suddenly on three continents. Wow. And that's just the beginning. There, There's a, uh, there's, I have a favorite story about, about that was told me by a, a great um, line producer and the story, and I'll try to make it short. It's, it's how long is the coast of Norway? And you say, well, you look at a map and the coast of Norway is 1800 kilometers, but then you get a better map and the better map has all these little crags and, you know things in it, and now you suddenly now the coast of Norway is twenty one hundred kilometers. They said, "Well, let's get a topo map, and now you got to go and go up and down and move around, and there are little fjords and there are islands. so eventually the coast of Norway has climbed just as you do your due diligence from eighteen hundred kilometers to three thousand kilometers, huh. and that's what happens with this scale is that you you're discovering things about how to do something that nobody necessarily had done. A good example was how to put Tom in a a fight, in a charge, fighting on horseback, and have his horse get t boned and knocked over. Well, y- you can't do that to Tom Cruise and, <laughs> and live to, you know, to to make another movie. But you want it to be Tom Cruise. And there was no such thing as face replacement for that kind of thing then. This was really pre-CG in many regards, in almost all regards. And someone, Paul Lombardi, a brilliant special effects t- technician that I'd worked with several times before, started talking to people. He said, let's build an animatronic horse. An animatronic horse that you could train to go up and down and whatever and whom you could then hit and it would go down and trap him under it. Wow. <laughs> and I, I think that moment in the movie probably is not more than, you know, 12 seconds, but it probably cost many, many hundred thousands of dollars to just get that one shot. Wow. So what I'm, des- what I'm describing to you in brief, and it has its applications in every other way, which is to say, okay, you want to make the movie in New Zealand. All right. How many Japanese are there in New Zealand? And the answer is not many. So what do you do? You go to Japan and you try to find young men. And train them to be fighters and dress extras, and then you get them on seven forty sevens, and you have to build a village where their dietary tastes are really reckoned with, and their and doctors and translators and and all of that, and that's just another aspect. And and there's you find that in every different aspect of the movie. What what were the costumes like? What were the weapons like? What were the, how do you is, is there such a thing as a, a functioning Gatling gun? You know, for the end. Oh well maybe not let's make one <laughs> you know so it just tends to to be revealed and all I'm talking about now are the technical sides which in some fundamental way are the easy sides always because you know technical things are they're one to one they're responsive but people are hard you know people are the x factor always and you know to to invite tom into this process was Literally, absolutely just you know, a um, defining moment for for its success and for its ability to go forward. And I might have had some anxiety to think, is he going to try to come in bigfoot us and try to tell us how to do it? And in fact, it was quite the opposite. He realized this was something we had dreamt and that we were going to do and that he was going to serve. Now that didn't mean that he didn't have a lot of ideas and a lot of really good ideas. But I'd also talked to other directors. I talked to Cameron Crow, who was a friend. I talked to, who else did I talk to? Oh, Ron Howard. I mean, there are people, you know, we, we all talk to each other. When it, when it really is, counts, you can call up somebody and say, give it to me straight. What's he like? And everybody said the same thing, which is that it's going to be the best experience of your life. It's going to be challenging. He challenges you when he doesn't agree with it. But he is there to play. And he's going to leave it all on the field. And that's what he did. See, I felt... This was an opportunity to do some of the kind of work that I had loved that Tom had done a little bit earlier in his career um, that was more internal, uh, that was laconic in some way. And what I had the benefit of, because I was getting crazed by um, the demands of production, having done what I'd done already in the writing, was to ask Marshall to come join me. And he stepped in. He stepped in in the most wonderful way. And I was able to have a shorthand with him. And he took... There was a great relationship between him and Tom, and the movie grew again. And this is uh, who
0: are you referring to,
1: Marshall? Marshall, my longtime partner uh, in Bedford Falls.
0: Oh, okay.
1: He, yeah, I mean, you know, he and I share credit with John Logan on the script. And the big piece of the puzzle for me was not Tom, and it was not even the logistics. It was finding the right Japanese actors. I don't speak Japanese. How could I find these people and have and understand how to direct them, how to know what they're trying to accomplish? And it's often happened to me that, that you find someone as a kind of Virgil to your experience into another culture. When I did uh, Blood Diamond, there was a man named Soraya Samura, a, a journalist from um, Freetown in, uh, in Sierra Leone, and this was a woman named um, Yoko Narahashi who was bicultural. Her father had been an ambassador to Sweden. She'd been raised both places. She was a director and she had a drama school of her own. And the minute that I met her and saw what she could be for us, it was invaluable because it was not just translating what I wanted to say, but understanding my intentions and their process. And everyone assumed that, um, that Hiroyuki Sanada, the man who plays Ujio, who plays the sort of major domo, that he should be um katsumoto because he was the biggest star he was the tom cruise of japan mm-hmm. and then ken watanabe walked in my office and it was, and I, he started to read and I, I i these moments when they happen you say oh this is the guy he is not just his stature he had humor and warmth and deep emotion and i go back and i tell warner brothers that this is the guy who i want to play the part and i do a little test with him on tape and and some some of the Warner Brothers Japanese people say, "Oh no, you can't do that." Casting in Japan is hierarchical, <laughs> and I say, "Yeah, but it's not in America." <laughs> <laughs> and because Ken is so winning, and 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 because, by the way, when Tom met him, Tom totally supported him too. They backed down from this, and uh, later became entirely pleased when Ken was nominated for an Oscar. I. I have to remind you. And so the other reason that happened is that Sonata was absolutely willing to play second, supporting to Ken, And he was there for him in a very wonderful way that, that, again, went beyond just the character and the words. He was a guide to us because he's a great fighting artist. And I learned a lot from him, and the, the, the fight director took a lot from him, and that was a, another big piece of the puzzle. We took it all.
0: There's an interesting detail in the book where uh, Ken at the time was sort of taking roles that were beneath him, having to pay off a debt.
1: Yeah, yeah that's true. This was never corroborated, but it seems to be an unknown secret that, uh, that the Yakuza at an early moment was very much involved in agenting actors and managing them. And I think Ken had been sick at one point and couldn't work for a while. And I think he had been in debt to these guys. And I think that that debt obliged him to do a lot of work that was a kind of TV version of what our movie was. Right. And he was maybe in a bit of a of a, of a down moment. And then you got him an Oscar nomination, totally turned it around. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. I mean, listen, I, I, I mean, you've seen all this stuff that he gets, he's done. And I mean, I went to go see him at Lincoln Center in The King and I. And, right. you know, there he was singing and dancing and, and it was pretty great. To go back to Tom for
0: a second, you also talk about his gut brain, I think is the word you use. just how he, he's such a student of films. He watches like one a night or something and that he, you were learning things from him.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I sometimes can be guilty of being a little bit over intellectual or, or I, I could overthink things. And Tom has an extraordinary capability of seeing things as the audience will be seeing them. He can take himself out of himself and place himself over there and say, oh, they're waiting for this to happen, or they know that already, or we need to help them know or, or place them in a place where they would be invested And in any, I'm, I'm just making those words up, but, but it was a real ability. And it's not for nothing that someone has that kind of career with that kind of longevity. Right. It's his understanding of the movie form and how to place himself within it. In many cases, still holding on to whatever that essential thing is for which people love movie stars and want to see again and again, both the same and different in different parts. But yeah, that was was amazing to see that
0: just happen. I saw a clip recently of Ethan Hawke talking about acting, and he was saying how Denzel Washington is the same way, that he's always in the audience's brain. He'll say, well, this won't make sense for the audience. And, then, and Of course, Denzel won an Oscar for, for your glory, and I wonder if you saw similarities there.
1: Well, the similarities are certain actors, what they know can't be taught. You know, They have some essential internal avidity, something behind their eyes, some kind of you know inner life that the audience senses and they want to know more about. And it's hard to talk about charisma and it's hard to talk about, you know, star power. And it's more, but it is more than the play of light and shadow on someone's face. Mm-hmm. It is some, some ineffable thing, you know, and you probably wouldn't know that Denzel Washington's one of the funniest people that I've ever been lucky enough to have dinner with. Mm. He can make me laugh like nobody's business. He doesn't show that necessarily in his performances but it's there you know and there's also um, a certain amount of anger that is there and there's also something that i think about with great movie stars gone by that there's more than a little bit of fuck you there's more than a little bit of i don't care what you think of me Mm -hmm. i don't want to please you i'm here to be this person and that's what i'm doing you could take it or leave it and i think you could probably think of you know some of the actors that i'm thinking about Sure. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, we, as an audience, we love that. Yes, please. I want to be that. You want them to be in control. You're there for the ride. I think that's right. <laughs>
0: Another thing that I wanted to bring up was uh, there's a great story about when you finally get back to uh, Burbank or to shoot the scenes, and suddenly all some of the biggest directors in the world have mysteriously showed up on your sets. Spielberg, Fincher, Cameron Crowe. Can you tell that story? Because it's so funny.
1: I mean, it was actually, we'd been in Japan for a couple of weeks. We shot... At a beautiful, up at the monastery, which is Katsamoto's headquarters, we found this great place. And we could afford to shoot there for about two weeks, and that was all. And so we were coming back to Warner Brothers. We were doing a lot of work, and we built this whole stage. And, you know, word gets around when interesting things are happening. I remember when I was 22 years old, Michael Phillips took me to go onto the set of Close Encounters because it was just so cool, and I had to see it. (laughs) And people were going to look at this old Hollywood creation of the street. And at one point, I happened to turn around and it, it's, it's, it's almost like a joke, you know, there's Cameron Crowe. Oh wait, there's Steven Spielberg. There's David Fincher and I'm sitting in my chair and they're like all behind me. And it's like, okay, and I, like, I don't want to feel too self-conscious about this, but whoa. And the great part of the story is that they had all come to see Tom for various reasons. Cause I think, I mean, Cameron had made a couple of movies with him. I think Fincher was going to, and then didn't. Uh, I think Spielberg then did. Um, I think that was War of the Worlds, and so they all had business with him. And but it's also a kind of a a kind of a courtesy call, a very sort of you know nineteenth century, if you will. Maybe they would hand their cards. You know, Mr. Spielberg, Mr. Cruz is at home. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but, but no, the great part of the story is that the unit photographer saw us all together and said, "Hey, can I just take your picture?" So there's a picture of all of us except Tom had been called away to do something. And then he heard about the picture later and he saw it and he said, I want to be in that picture. So (laughs) we shot Tom and then Photoshopped him into the picture.
0: And it's in the book and it's very funny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thank God through Photoshop magic. He got to be with the, the crew. I'm sure he could have pulled you guys together if he really wanted to. <laughs> oh, he could have. And that's the power of him. That's why you were getting yeses on all these things. It must have been, was it the most luxurious experience of your life in terms of what the studio was saying yes to?
1: I think this is something else about epic movies. And in the famous story, of course, is Heaven's Great, But every department looks upon this as an opportunity to do their best work. And suddenly it's a movie about horses. Or suddenly it's a movie about costumes or it's a movie about armaments, you know, and all of a sudden your job becomes about trying to actually put your finger in the dike and hold down these people who are wanting to do their wonderful work, except that the perfect is the enemy of the good. And it has to be your job to say, no, our job is to make a great movie and not to make it about those things, but have everything fit into it. And that is a, it's a challenge how these things get, get blown out of proportion.
0: It's funny that you bring up Heaven's Gate. I, Shortly before his death, I interviewed Michael Cimino and I was thinking about it while watching your film. Not that your film is like that, but that the the scope, the, the scale of it and the money on screen, were you worried at any point? Oh God, like what if this is getting away from me? And I, I don't know that. And it is a heaven's gate.
1: Well, I mean, I, you know, the funny thing about my career is I've shot a lot of television in eight days you know, hundreds of hours of it in fact, and sometimes with my own money on the line, you know, for overages. So I I can be pretty, pretty um close with a dollar. So I had some sense of it, but at a certain point you too drink the Kool-Aid and you <laughs> become Ahab. No, it has to be like this. You know, and 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 you get a little you get a little nuts. But you know, I, I guess that what really was so gratifying was how the movie was embraced in Japan, that it was the, by far the best grossing American movie at that point ever. And that made a huge difference to the, you know, to the P and L of the movie and to the studios feeling happy about it. And all the movie, all the money that Tom Cruise made from it and you know, all that. But you couldn't know that till much later. No, no. (laughs) Although, you know, you start to get a little sense. You show the movie to some people, you preview it. You know, you get the sense that things are working, Right. but until you actually go and go to Phoenix or Paramus, New Jersey, or wherever you end up having these people, you know, deliver a verdict on your work, you don't really know.
0: Well, let me just say that in watching it again, it's a wonderful film. It's, it has a real depth, and emotional depth to it. And it has something to say and it
1: is not a pageant at all and really holds up. That's the thing you worry about. You know, you I mean, I finally I sometimes believe that even these historical movies are also the biggest little television episodes ever made because they're finally about the people and about their relationships and that that's what you invest in. Yes, you love all of the the ways that the action advances the narrative and the action deepens the characters and that. But the that is the edifice on which these characters stand. And that's what you as the audience are moved by and what you identify with. And and I can point, and if you asked me about themes before, you know, there's Blood Diamond is a big movie, but it's about those people. It's about those three people and, and, and that kid. And I guess that's what you have to keep your eye on. That's the thing you can never lose sight with. And I think sometimes with movies of a huge scale, you can fall in love with scale, but scale is it gives verisimilitude, but it's essentially neutral. You know, it doesn't have the, you know, until, I mean, I can think that I could actually contradict myself because I know that there are moments when a character steps forward and looks out at a landscape. There's a moment to me in Legends of the Fall, which is one of my favorite moments ever, when uh, the character that, that Nathan Quinn played, when he has his little suitcases and he's split with his father and his brother and he walks into Helena, and it's this young man seeing his future with these buildings there, and that's scale telling a story, because he's been on a ranch, and we've seen that whole world, and now here he is, this little guy with these suitcases, and he's going to make his mark, so that's an example where scale can be emotional, but it has, but it's so connected to him, which is why you need it.
0: You mentioned the the success of it in Japan, which had to feel amazing. I mean, it made something like a like hundred and something million in the U.S., but then Another 300 and something million overseas. And um, a good deal of that was in Japan. And, you know, you can't help but watch a film like that in 20 years later in, you know, in today's, I feel like people would immediately dismiss it because they'd say, well, you know, you're trying to, you know, co-opt Japanese culture and put a white guy at the middle of it. And I know it's been debated, this whole white savior thing, and um, I'm curious what what you would say to it. I don't see it as a white savior film, but I'm curious what you would say to people who do.
1: I mean, he is, he is changed by them. <laughs> They're not changed yes. by him. And The Last Samurai is not Tom Cruise. The Last Samurai is Ken Watanabe. Right. And that was what I always saw. I mean, Tom Cruise happens to be a very big movie star, and people are tempted to make those um, sort of assumptions, but it's not what the movie is. He goes deeper and deeper and he is learning. He's not teaching anybody. There's something where he teaches a little bit about military stuff that he knows, but no, that's I was never worried about that. You know, I'd had that conversation once before about glory and my response was even a little bit different was excuse me, this was the story. This was about a young white man and it was about these black men and you know, I was pressured at the time by the studio to make it more of a white savior narrative, to make it more about Matthew Broderick. But in fact, these men were in such a state of grace and what they were doing was so remarkable and so penetrating and I couldn't help but just turn my focus just toward them. Mm. And so did the whole movie begin to tilt that way.
0: We had uh, Matthew Broderick on last season for Ferris Bueller and, you know, Glory came up. And I'm curious just now that I have you here, you know, I think he was surprised you cast him. Why did you cast him? It was so out of uh, the norm of what he was doing. It
1: was um, actually a fiat the, that unless I cast, he was the one time in, in that I've done this. Unless you cast Matthew, Matthew Broderick as that part, there will be no movie. No kidding. Yeah, that's how it worked. Uh, he had done Ferris Bueller; that was a big deal. However hard it might be to see the correspondence between Ferris Bueller and Glory, nonetheless, he was a deal. And in fact, it, it was a it was the source of a lot of complications in, with us and our relationship when somebody at 24 years old is given that responsibility that he may not necessarily at the, that moment be prepared to take on.
0: Was it Ferris Bueller that you that gave you the idea? or like what, what performance
1: led you to... No, no. Excuse me. Let me say it again. That gave them the idea. I had this script and I had then worked on it and then rewritten it and I had this movie that I wanted to make, but it was not until they had Matthew Broderick signed, that they would agree to make the movie.
0: Oh, it was the studio who wanted him. (laughs) Okay. Oh, yeah! Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I had it upside down in my head. Okay, so he was sort of thrust upon you, but in the end, you were happy with it.
1: Well, his performance is great in the movie, but we had a hard time together. We really did. It was was not a happy relationship. Yeah, we did.
0: It's funny because I figured him and John Hughes must have been, you know, besties. And he said the same thing that he and John Hughes locked heads, locked horns a lot.
1: So there you go. Yeah, well, (laughs) do I look surprised?
0: (laughs) All right. Sorry for the misunderstanding there. I think it's cleared up now. That's okay. All right. But uh, back to the film. Another uh, Timothy Spall, who I'm sure a lot of people know from the Harry Potter films, so wonderful in this part. Well,
1: think of, think of the opportunity, you know, I felt a little bit like I was, you know, John Houston or John Ford casting these extraordinary supporting actors, Tim Spall, Billy Connolly, Billy Connolly. It was so much fun and so funny that we had to, I had to beg him to shut up and stop making us all laugh so we could actually work.
0: Had he done a, a big, serious role like that or in a big, serious film or was he?
1: He had done a movie with um Judy Dench called um Mrs. Brown. Okay. And that was a small movie, but he was wonderful in it. And Billy Connolly and Tim Spall and by the way, and, and Tony Goldwyn, who was, you know, another director there to sort of sympathize with what I was going through. Mm-hmm. And in a scene
0: like the, uh, the battle at the end, uh-huh. I guess you had already, had you had done battles in glory. I, it just seems like such an overwhelming thing to have that many ideas
1: and have, it so is. how do you prepare for that? Well, I mean, you over-prepare and it's a kind of redundancy. Uh, the, I mean, are there are any number of ways to approach it. One is what you want it to look like, but the other is how do you make it happen? I'll give you for instance. There, you know, there is a horse charge at the end and you want, you've got a lot of horses and you've got actors on them and, but you also, you know, there is real scrutiny and rules as there should be to how horses are treated, but we wanted horses to fall. So how do you make horses fall? The answer is you find gypsy riders in Spain who go to Japan six months before you shoot, who find young horses and who teach them to love to fall. And the way they teach them is they dig out pits and fill the pits with mulch and sawdust and grass. And they, I don't know if you ever played baseball, if you ever played hotbox, when you would run back and forth and slide and belly flop and do all the things that kids do. They were like kids. These horses wanted to fall. But it took the logistics and the money and the time to get these guys, identify them, bring them over find the horses, find a place to lodge the horses, train the horses, have them nearby. You know, that was just one small element of the battle. That's insane. That is just the craziest thing I've ever heard. Yep. It's a true thing, though, because there's no CG. Those horses are falling. And by the way, it looks like it because the things that happen in that frame, I never in my imagination could ever come up with the kind of images that happened because they were real images. A perfect blossom is a rare thing. You could spend your life looking for them, and it would not be a wasted life. To get the cherry blossoms to waft correctly off the tree and float by the actors was a source of endless conversations. <laughs> what, what do you make cherry blossoms out of to be able that they can have the hang time? How do they have that kind of ephemeral beauty and, and what and, and what is the right color not just of what they look like in life but what they look like on camera. And so you do cherry blossom tests. <laughs> well that's true. <laughs> i got to tell you, I've never gone to this depth with anybody about this. It's kind of fun.
0: I love it, though. I was looking at these life photographs recently, and there was a shot, like behind the scenes shot from Spartacus. And there's all these dead soldier extras on the ground, and each one has a, a holding a number on. Yeah. Because Kubrick would say, 48, move, move your arm. <laughs> he, he was doing these tableaus of death.
1: This, this wonderfully talented man named Kevin Delanoi, who I also worked with later on, on Blood Diamond, but Kevin had been the line producer of the of the Beach Landing in uh, in Private Ryan. Think about that for a moment. Wow, he had done something else amazing, but he's British, and um, he went to uh, I'm sure he went to a fancy school. But knowing him was how I came to understand how that little island could have actually ruled the world during the period of time that they had the Raj. Because Kevin would do things, he would figure out like time and motion studies to say, okay, if you put all, you, you create what he called sausage factories, which is the extra arrives, and he goes into this place where he gets hair and makeup done. Then he moves on to the tent where he gets his... Costume put on. Then he moves into the tent where he gets his armor put on. Then he, you know, and that's a process. And the the buses have to take him there. And then they got him get them to lunch afterwards and figure out bathroom breaks. And there are seven hundred people. I don't know how many people. But the point is, what Kevin figured out is it made more sense to get eight more buses and take out a row of seats each time, so that these guys could get on the bus and off the bus with greater ease, and that that would save A certain amount of production time that was invaluable. Now that's nuts, right? That's really nutty, but it was true. The
0: Henry Ford of uh, battle scenes.
1: That's right, (laughs) exactly.
0: That's pretty incredible. And and that scene, that shot in uh, in New Zealand is that the one that you flew out all the extras to?
1: Yeah, I mean that was we, we built the village in New Zealand. I mean that's Lily Kilvert, just this wonderful production designer. Lily arrived in New Zealand five months before we shot there and planted the rice fields so that they would be rice fields and she brought in carpenters from Japan to build those you know those houses in the proper tongue and groove way and have the right tatami mats yeah unbelievable i know what a beautiful I mean, memory though for you yeah yeah and, and so you ask you know why did i write the book there there's a great quote and i think it's a nin who said that a memoir is a way to enjoy the same meal twice. Very nice.
0: Well, I think that's a great place for us to stop. What a beautiful recollection. Uh, <laughs> I know this is a lot uh, for you, but I'm sure you have a tour coming up. You're going to have to talk a lot about all these things.
1: Well, you know, I don't think I'm going to go to this depth about this with anybody. And it's <laughs> actually fun for me to di- divest myself of the insanity that you you were interested enough to listen. So, So thank you.
0: The cherry blossoms. We get that scoop. Well, congratulations and best of luck uh, with everything. It was such a treat to get to talk to you and
1: uh, such a fan of everything you've done. Go sell my book because nobody else will. Publishing these days has no money for marketing, as you well know. So this is why I'm doing this. And it was fun, though.
0: We're going to get it out there. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Well, thanks to this week's guest, Ed Zwick, for his generous time and amazing Uh, recollections. Uh, They were very entertaining. And next week, we're going to have another great writer-director. His name is Stephen Elliott, and he's responsible for the classic Australian comedy Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, a hilarious film about drag, actually, way before drag became a mainstream moneymaker. So we'll have him, and until then...